0: OCI is the single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. Do more and spend less, like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic. Take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash WallStreet.
1: From the opinion pages
0: of The Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker.
1: Hello and welcome to Free Expression from the opinion pages of The Wall Street Journal. I'm Jerry Baker, editor-at-large of The Journal. If you're not already a subscriber, please do sign up at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you do your listening. This week, a conversation with the head of one of America's leading universities. Last month, I sat down with Paul Sartos, president of the University of Chicago at the World Economic Forum in Switzerland, for a wide-ranging discussion about what's going wrong and what's going right in American higher education. It's been a tumultuous few months on university campuses. Pro-Palestinian protests and disturbing instances of anti-Semitism have led to a backlash from prominent alumni outraged at the direction many elite colleges have taken. This comes, of course, after years in which many of America's top colleges have become apparently ideologically monolithic institutions with fewer and fewer conservative voices, or indeed any voices other than the orthodoxies, represented in academia and growing evidence of a culture of even of repression of voices that dissent from those orthodoxies. That came to a head last month with the resignation of Claudine Gay, a Harvard president who, in addition to being something of a personification of these worrying trends, was also credibly accused of plagiarism. The University of Chicago has always seen itself as a staunch defender of the principle of free speech in academia, and I spoke with Alavisatos about this and the wider problems facing higher education. But we also talked about some of the great things that are going on in American universities, and obviously, particularly the University of Chicago. We talked in particular about some of the most interesting and innovative and very exciting areas of research that the University of Chicago is doing. Paul Alavasatis, president of the University of Chicago, joins me now. Paul, thanks very much for joining Free Expression again.
0: Thank you so much for having me back. I'm really I'm really happy to be here. Hoping we can
1: make this a regular event because it's always fascinating. You're the president of the University of Chicago. You're in, what now, well into your second year as, yeah. uh, as president? That's right. Chicago's doing some amazing things in all kinds of research, and I want to talk a lot about that. That's very much your field. Mm-hmm. and It's very much your specialism, and I want to talk about that, and we will. We'll talk yeah. about some of the interesting things that you're doing. But obviously, higher education has been very much in the news in the last month or two. Protests on campus, some of them quite ugly. Campuses across the country, often anti-Semitic protests. The performance of a few of your peers, university presidents uh, at a congressional committee hearing before Christmas, where they didn't really acquit themselves very well in answering questions about those protests and the resignation of one of them. Then allegations of plagiarism against uh, Claudine Gay, president of Harvard University, and after a little bit, her resignation there's a general sense here, I think, the reason that this catches the imagination and catches the attention right now is that this, I think, does crystallise, and we talked about this, Paul, when we spoke last year, that the idea of free speech at campus, and we can step aside from the specific allegations about plagiarism here, but the broader question of free speech at campus and the way in which that some speech seems to be privileged and some speech doesn't seem to be privileged, I think I can put it at that minimum. And I think that's what was so alarming to so many people when they saw those university presidents for Congress, the idea that they were defending free speech when we know that at many those universities and we don't have to give chapter and verse, but many of those universities, <laughs> there are certain types of speech that are certainly not tolerated if they don't fit with the prevailing orthodoxy. You know, Chicago always has been very different. You're going to talk, I know, a little bit about the principles that the universities always followed. How do you see this whole debate about free expression, free speech at universities? Genuine intellectual diversity, genuine diversity of thought and essentially what people know when I grew up, when I'm going to university, what university was supposed to be for, which was free environments in which people could explore, however dangerous and however threatening, could explore ideas. Give us your sense of where it stands, both at the University of Chicago and, if you would, more broadly in higher Well,
0: education. I think I'm going to stick to the University All of right, Chicago, okay. if you'll allow me to. But I do hope that for the listeners that that's a helpful perspective, because, as you said, it's not something that we come to lightly. In fact, it's our entire history. And it's because at the deepest level, when our university was first imagined and throughout its history, it has really grappled with what does it mean to be a place of truth-seeking? And the first value, the fundamental first principle, there's a few principles that really really, really matter in the university. And the first one is absolutely free inquiry and free expression. It is the fundamental one. In fact, I shared with you our little Chicago canon there we've put together this fall, the documents over history that show how the university over the years, each time our societies have been involved in discussions around these topics, how our thinking has matured and developed. And so, as I say, the first principle for sure inside the university is free inquiry and free expression and protecting it. And one thing that, I would call as the central piece of that, which has been referenced more than 120 times in editorials in the last couple of months, is institutional neutrality. In our case, it's been enshrined in something called the Calvin Report, which was developed by faculty in the 1967 period. The president, George Beadle, at the time asked some of our all-star faculty, including Harry Calvin from the law school, to put together their thoughts about why is institutional neutrality so important. And what they have left, All of us as a legacy in their beautiful report, which is in that canon, is why. The university must not take positions if the university is to be a place of truth-seeking. And the reason is because no matter how well-meaning you may be in one moment to want to make a point of view of the university in which the president speaks for the university, by doing that, you have already said to people within your community of scholars, which has a very diverse set of points of view, this is the right answer. And the cardinal rule inside a university is that evidence, reason, logic, rigor, but not authority is how we decide what's right and what's wrong. And therefore, the institution cannot assert authority as to what is or is not the right answer inside the university. And once you do it once, you're going to get called to do it again, even a single time. And then once you've done it 10 times, it becomes an avalanche. Every time that happens, it narrows the spectrum of what People feel can be said. And that is why I think at Chicago we've adhered to this over all those years. And I do believe that it's part of why we've been able throughout the fall in a very difficult time when people may sometimes say things that are deeply offensive or really hard to listen to. But we have remained a place of reason where people actually do talk with each other and think things through. And that's what a university needs to be.
1: You've been admirably robust on this. And as you say, you sit at the top of an institution which has got a, an extraordinary pedigree in this. And thank you, by the way. And I should say, again, for listeners to point it out, the book you gave me, which you've compiled these principles, if you like, and these expressions of these principles in this book called the Chicago canon on free inquiry and expression. So you know, there's no question where Chicago has historically stood for, and indeed where you are making sure that it stays in that position. Again, even at Chicago, if we read yeah. some stories in the press, sure. there are people, yeah. presum- both students and on the faculty, who presumably Would like you not to be neutral, who would actually Who don't like this institutional neutrality, Mm -hmm. who just as at other universities want the university to take positions on racism and what's going on in the world and all kinds of things like that. How much pushback have you had? How much expressions of resistance to the expression of these principles have you had from either from faculty or from students?
0: Well. Holding on to your principles is something you work hard at every day. And this has been a period that's been very intense. Of course, there are people who have pushed very hard for us to make institutional statements. I think what people ultimately want to hear from us, though is, first, they're going to get the direct answer. We're not going to take a position because of the history and why it matters for the future. But the second thing that people want to know is that we are committed as an institution to dialogue across difference. Our faculty who may disagree with each other about everything, I believe they do share an absolute commitment that our students should learn to think about things from multiple different points of view. They should learn different perspectives of how to think, and they should always be able to engage in a discussion. Discussion in which there is a disagreement, if there is. But they see a human being in the other person they're in dialogue with. They don't see a symbol. They don't see somebody who is some abstraction. They're in a dialogue together as human beings, as part of a community, trying to find the right answers. I don't mean to say that it's been an easy fall, but I do believe that's our institution and we have stuck with it. There are issues, for example, around protest. And protest, I think I told you last time I grew up myself in a dictatorship in Greece. So at that time the government was controlling what could be said and not said inside the university. I don't know if I shared with you this other aspect of it, which was right after the junta fell and democracy was restored. Within about a year, it turned out that students started to periodically take over the university and they shut it down, sometimes for months on end. And that, in my view, was an awful thing where protest was disruptive in such a way that it prevented people from learning. It prevented the process of the exchange of ideas that the university. And so, you know, it's a part of society. It's sometimes how we correct things, but it certainly should not veer into disruption. We did have an event on the campus where some students and others took over an academic building, and ultimately, after we gave them, you know, significant opportunities to depart, you know, those people are in a disciplinary process. They were cited and arrested, and we made sure that we would not allow that classroom to be disrupted. There are some people who say, oh, that means the University of Calcutta committed to free expression. I beg to differ very strongly.
1: Yes, uh, you said, last fall was a difficult one. We're in a, what could be a very turbulent year politically, I think, Everybody looks out in the course of the next year. We've got an election coming up, which is controversial probably, but whichever way you want to slice it, students are very politically active and involved. Are you confident that you'll be able to maintain both your principles and an environment of orderliness and free inquiry and free expression during, as I say, what could be quite challenging political times domestically?
0: Well, let me tell you a little anecdote, if I may. You know, every day I get my little updates from the university. And last night I got this one and I'm still smiling all through my body right now because our Institute of Politics took twenty seven students to the Iowa caucuses. These were people with vastly different political viewpoints from incredibly different backgrounds. They went together, and I just to say, they debated ethanol politics with corn farmers. They explored Trump headquarters, digital operations. They delved into Iowa's political landscape, met with political reporters. They observed a caucus, they had dinner with a renowned pollster, and they met with an alum who is the youngest Democrat ever elected. And they ended their day at Mr. Trump's post-caucus victory rally, said a student. I found I learned a lot about the rally, the post-victory Trump event. I found I learned a lot about perspectives that were different from mine, got exposed to new things, and it was a -a once-in-a-lifetime experience for me. That's the University of Chicago. That's our kids going, they're seeing the world, they're learning about it firsthand. Our students, that's what they're like, and I'm proud of them. Will it be an easy year? No. If we stick to our fundamental principles, the university will remain a healthy place. I mentioned to you there's only a handful of principles that guide us. There is one, though, that I will say matters to me very much. It comes partly from my background, which is universities also require that they themselves exhibit a fierce resistance to outside forces coming in and telling them what can be taught and what cannot be, or who can be part of the faculty or who can be. Those things are terrible. And we will always stand on the side of allowing, you know, a university like ours to be a place where we're going to manage our own business. If we make mistakes, then, you know, we won't be seen as as good a university over time. But we are are committed to that. And, you know, I want to make sure that your listeners hear that the free expression also, we're going to hold to that, but we also are looking that forces in society of all different kinds recognize that it is the job of the university to make that work, but not the job of others to come in and start to control what can or cannot be said.
1: And a final question on this issue of free expression before we move on to the specific areas of research interest that you have. As you look at the events of the last couple of months without being specific at all about the universities that have been in the spotlight, Do you think maybe the tide is turning a little bit and that maybe more universities will come to, whether formally or informally, adopt the principles that you've adumbrated for the University of Chicago? Do you think the climate is changing, you know, as you look at what's been going on?
0: Here's what I can tell you about what we have done. This actually just a few weeks before October 7, because, you know, even last time when we talked, we knew that this was a topic that has been really roiling higher education for some time. We established something called the Chicago Forum for Free Inquiry and Expression. Tom Ginsburg from the law school leads it, and it involves a number of our faculty from incredible different political points of view, and it is a place for us to struggle with the issues of free expression inside universities, in our own university, but it's also a place for dialogue with other universities, and it is even a place for dialogue with civil society, other sectors, and so on. And I think that's a place, you know, we're not going to ever tell anyone else what they should be doing, but we certainly are there to be in dialogue about how we think about these things and to listen to them about how they think about them, and so our forum is a place for exchange like that, and I think it will make a big difference. And I think that these ways that we have developed have been adopted through the Chicago principles by more than 100 universities, and I hope that, uh, indeed, things do come our way.
1: A lot of people look at the massive expansion of university administrators, and particularly in the field of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and they see in that purely aside from whether or not universities are committed to the principles of free expression, they see in that itself a problem because it imposes practices, whether it's to do with speech or hiring or all those kind of things, that can have a significant effect on diversity of thought at universities. Just tell us briefly how you approach that at the University of Chicago. Do you have a commitment to diversity and inclusion in that
0: way? Let me say this, that when we think about the handful of principles, free expression is the central one. Commitment to academic excellence in everything that we do has to be right up there. I mentioned to you a fierce commitment that we will not be told what to do do inside the university. But right up there is that we should, in order to avoid groupthink, we should have a diversity of viewpoint and experience inside the university. So it is a really big thing. But how you achieve that could have a vast variety of different kinds of policies and procedures and approaches and even philosophies for how to go about doing that. I can say that in our case, for example, we think hard about what creates the feeling of belonging to the whole of the university, to being a citizen of the university, meaning to be investing in this idea. Idea of dialogue with people who disagree with you enormously. So we don't, for example, you know, our housing, all students are placed into housing without a sort of an identity sorting or something like that, and so on and so forth. In other words, all of our policies have been thought through. Now, there are resident student organizations, for example, where students, like in civil society, they will gather around common interests, whether those are identities or some hobby that they may have. And that's great. But our actions as an institution consistently are conceived around the idea that diversity of viewpoint and experience is fundamental, but that we want people to be a citizen of the whole and to be a part of the community of scholars, not a part from (laughs) the community of scholars. We'll take a short break there. When we come back, I'll have more with Paul Alivasatos,
1: president of the University of Chicago. We'll be talking about some of the exciting new areas of research that his university is engaged in. Stay with us.
0: So how do we get AI right? Well, we need the right volume of data, the software to train it, and massive compute power, or... Another one bites the dust. Are you ready?
1: Hey, are you ready for this? Are you hanging on
0: the edge of your seat? But with HPE GreenLake, we get access to supercomputing to power AI at the scale we need, helping generate better insights. All right! Nice teamwork, guys. Search HPE GreenLake.
1: You're listening to Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Don't forget, you can listen to the latest episode anytime on your smart speaker. Just say, play the Opinion Free Expression podcast. Now, back to Jerry Baker. I'm back with Paul Alavisatos, president of the University of Chicago. We're talking about the state of American higher education, but also about some of the very interesting areas of research that the University of Chicago and others are doing. Okay, let's now move on to what we should be talking about when we talk about universities, right? Which is the yes. work that you do. Yes. You universities <laughs> have become, unfortunately, these yeah. sort of forums for all these political debates in the sort of roiling society and everything else. But what you do, and particularly, you're a very eminent scientist yourself, University of Chicago has a tremendous reputation in all disciplines, but particularly in a lot of scientific disciplines. And I know that, again, under your leadership now you are doing some really interesting research. And again, I think what's so important about this research, and I know what our listeners are so interested in is your university, you do pure research, but so much of this pure research that you do has some really important practical applications. And I want to talk to you about several areas that I know that you're interested in. So why don't you tell me? I know there are three particular areas I think that we, that we can talk about. Well, let's go through them one at a time. So first of all, quantum. Is, quantum. This, is this Yeah, back to basics. And I'm probably less scientifically knowledgeable than 99% of my listeners. So talk to me correctly as someone who doesn't understand anything about this at all. But if you can, in the clearest and most comprehensible terms to explain what quantum is, and what particularly interesting and exciting research is that you're doing.
0: So quantum information science and technology is something that I'm sure your listeners will have at least heard of occasionally, but it is, you no know, a different way of thinking. And of course, it's the idea that instead of having just a zero and one to represent the information, that uh, a bit can be anything in between those. But more importantly, that when bits are connected to each other, they influence each other. And if you can read the outcome of how they connect to each other, that can tell you something about the system. We've known for some time, decades really, that in principle, if we could could develop quantum information processors, that they could do things that are not possible otherwise. A simple example would be, because an atom is a quantum system, it can be in different levels. If we take several atoms and put them together, we make a molecule. That's an example of something that could be simulated on a quantum computer far better than it could be on a classical one if the quantum computer was operating with full control. And what's happened, our university has been really at the forefront of this. We've made deep commitments to it. And in fact, I'm very proud to say that through the Chicago Quantum Exchange, we have a group of institutions all throughout the Chicago region that has the national labs, Argonne and Fermi, our other sister-friendly universities, um, Urbana, University of Illinois, Chicago, Northwestern, Chicago State. We're all working together to develop a kind of quantum partnership. And just to share with your listeners about where things are, outstanding companies like Google and IBM and so on are at the stages now of developing inside their laboratories the first real quantum computers that have maybe 100 or 500 qubits in them. Just after we spoke last year, I had the chance to meet Arvind Krishna, the IBM CEO, and we had a a discussion in which we thought that maybe there could be a partnership which ultimately came to fruition. It's a partnership now between the University of Tokyo, the University of Chicago, and IBM Research to do the science together for a 100,000-qubit supercomputer that will be tied to a conventional computer, which would allow us to do things like understand aspects of proteins and drugs and how energy storage works in different systems and so on. It's a 10-year partnership. And to me, you know, I just want to say, this, that we're talking about free expression. Truth-seeking is a really hard thing to do, whether you're thinking about politics or whether you're doing an analysis of the history of how different texts have worked in the Muslim world or whether you're trying to understand quantum information. And the main thing we always are trying to do is to help ourselves get past our preconceptions. It's a great moment in quantum right now. Actually, here, we'll be signing an agreement tomorrow to bring in Seoul National into this partnership with Tokyo. And it's a really wonderful example of seeing Japan-Korea the United States working together. Yeah,
1: because the University of Tokyo too.
0: That's right. So we've got Japan, Korea, and the United States working together in the trilateral alliance that's working its way. And we're excited to be a part of that. We're excited to be part of what our country's trying to do. Tell
1: us quickly, again, the work you're doing with IBM and the work that you're working with Japanese and Korean institutions. Just again, give us some possible practical outcomes from this.
0: Oh, practical outcomes. We could do a much better job, for example, of imagining what future battery materials might look like. We can do things that relate to design of drugs that would have pharmaceutical impacts. So those are the kind of, you know, conventional uh, use cases. Certainly there are many more. We know that a very strong quantum computer of large scale can be used to solve certain kinds of mathematical problems, cryptography problems, and so on. Not every problem is best solved by this combination of zeros and ones being uh, fungible or being able to be in any value in between. But there's a certain classes of problems that it's very, very good for. And for those problems, we'll see enormous developments in due course. Now, you know, this is a, n- a nascent area. It, this area hasn't had a chat GPT moment. But for the university, we work on things. We work we're working on those AI-based kind of things that now we all take for granted, as we're well, all the universities, you know, working in various ways decades ago. I mean, could we see a chat GPT moment in the quantum field, It will happen within some, 10 years. Yeah, oh, we will.
1: There'll be some dramatic breakthrough. Yes.
0: There have been some early announcements showing that we're often in partnerships between universities and these large companies and national labs because they're very complex problems. But we are already seeing examples where there's demonstrations of what's called quantum supremacy, meaning that the quantum system can do something that no conventional computer, no matter how large, could do. You know, there's some argument about is that really proven or not, but we're kind of tinkering at the edge of that, and it's pretty clear that with the kinds of things that are going on at the leading companies and what the uh, national government's now supporting in different countries, uh, that we're going to get there, and I'm, I'm
1: excited about that. Again, you've done a lot of work in the University of Chicago, it's really some world-leading work. is. We will talk about his immunology and, yeah. and the sort of medicine, yeah. biology yeah. field. Tell us again about some of the... Yeah, the, well, the, I, the, the I, I
0: just, I'd like to give your listeners one example because I think it's pretty concrete and it's something that, to me, if I think about 2023 and I say, what am I going to remember about 2023? One of the big things I'm going to remember is going to be this moment when one of our faculty who's been working on this for quite some time announced the first example of what's called an inverse vaccine. And the idea here is the following. I think listeners will know that when we give a vaccination, it's in order to present something inside your body, which will then induce an immune response. You place a molecule inside there, and then the body responds to it. Now imagine a situation where you have a metabolite that shows up inside the liver that is part of an autoimmune disorder, and it it creates uh, an immune response that's unwanted. And uh, what our colleague Jeff Hubble showed was that you could attach that to another antibody and essentially create a situation where that memory of that molecule inducing the immune response could be removed. So it's like the immune system normally has this kind of dictionary of words, and when one of those words shows up, it goes, oh my God, and starts to generate a big immune response. He's essentially, through an inverse vaccine, he's essentially removed that molecule. Now, that's just a demonstration in the laboratory. I mean, I don't mean to pretend that somehow this is something that's like available today, but what I mean to say is that the university is doing its job because there's been this kind of idea breakthrough, and we're going to work. We're going to work with pharmaceutical companies, we're going to work with startups, and I think in due course. And just to say again when we talk about higher education maybe one of the reasons it's so contested right now is because when a university works well through its seeking of the truths the gifts that it brings to society are so large and they come with responsibilities but you know it's just such a special thing to think that this may exist one and day to be but
1: clear what a layman like me would think of as traditional vaccines we learned a lot about mrna vaccines during the covid pandemic and the way they yeah, work it's not like this that. is more this is much more akin to the traditional taking a you know a live virus or whatever and and they impl- I mean it's, uh, not, it's, it's sort, of in, it's yeah, sort okay. of in between it's sort of in between but yeah. but
0: but it is finding a way to see what it is that triggers the immune response and finding a way to use the immune system to take that out. And so it's not the mRNA technique it's a different one but it, it you know it uses some of the very same principles of immunology and you know it, it's just a different thought maybe that will stay in your mind now in first yeah. vaccine yeah. and one day it may be really helping a lot of people. Third
1: one finally the topic that everybody is talking yeah, about yeah. everybody <laughs> if I joke now that I'm going to change my name to Jerry Baker a- because, yeah. it, because it seems to me that if you add AI Might as to well. your name, then it you can raise a huge amount of money. Like uh, <laughs> all these companies everywhere around the world can call themselves AI companies. They raise, every investor wants to invest in AI. Every university <laughs> wants to research AI. It's, it's taken over. But seriously, with you, Paul, tell us about well, the particular areas no, of AI, I, so, artificial I mean, look, intelligence.
0: I, this is so much fun in this area right now. I mean, obviously, I know many people are thinking about the implications and what could go wrong, the ethics, the policy, the law, particularly here. But I do want to say that as a scientist, our plan at the university is to continue to to develop the foundations, the deep understanding. How are we going to not hallucinate in these things and so on? What different kinds of data and so on. But AI and science, AI and medicine, AI and finance and economics, these are going to be breakthrough areas. You know, this year we're here really talking with partners about how to do that. But I want to share with your listeners just one thing. With the chat GPT moment, everybody knows that was the... Okay, but I'm a scientist and I want to just put out my chat GPT... Or the moment for a scientist, there was a chat GPT moment. And it was when DeepMind and the EMBL released alpha fold. So what's alpha fold? A protein is a set of amino acids, different kinds, and then they can fold into a structure. Yeah. And it's been a problem for 50 years. Biologists, physicists, chemists, mathematicians, computer scientists, anyone who could think about a biological problem trying to figure out how could I take the amino acid sequence and then know how the protein's going to fold? And the team that published this seminal work from DeepMind and EMBL, they were able to take the 180,000 protein structures that had been published. Now, I also want to share with listeners, imagine thousands of scientists. Imagine the Department of Energy investing billions of dollars in creating the X-ray synchrotron sources at the national labs, and then all of the work that has gone into collecting the structure of 180,000 proteins. So now we know those amino acid sequences and how they folded. AlphaFold now was able to develop with that data set an AI tool which can take any amino acid sequence and fold it, and nobody yet has been able to find an example where it didn't get it right. So This is astonishing. This is just like, whoa. To
1: a scientific ignoramus like me, explain what practical applications (laughs) that might lead to. So
0: this means now that you can just sit on a computer and put in amino acid sequences and see how they fold. And then you can imagine how those might dock. You know, that could be something that is a protein that's part of how a drug works. It could be something that induces an immune response, like we were talking about earlier. Could be something that is used in uh, synthetic uh, biology to make, transformation to allow us to utilize corn more effectively. Going back to our uh, yep. discussion about corn in yep. Iowa. Yep. So proteins are used. They're one of the building blocks of life. And suddenly now we don't just have the code. We actually know how to take them into how they function and then to be able to test that on the computer, see how they work. As a scientist, you just sit there and you say, wow, this is a moment of change. And it's true. It's not like, you know, some of these other the LLMs and so on that are being used. There's all kinds of discussions. Is, is You know, does it say something that accurate or not, in this case, the data set was real. It was curated by scientists. It was developed by a lot of hard work. And suddenly with the AI tool, it's able now to allow us to predict things. And for the world of science, for the world of medicine, this is going to be transformative. We're going to create so much new knowledge. It's going to be just a huge change. Just quickly, Paul, on the AI question, where do you stand? I
1: mean, obviously received a lot of attention, as we've said, over the last couple of years, particularly with the chat GPT moment. And of course, it alarms a lot of people, understandably. You know, we think about robots Controlling the world, computers controlling us, and all of this stuff. And there's been calls from very serious people, some of the people who've done some of the most serious research and accelerating research in AI, people like Geoffrey Hinton, the famous Google researcher, who've raised the alarm about AI and called for regulatory measures, international agreements, whatever, to regulate it to limit, you know, at least that we have some control over the potential reach of it. Where do you stand on that spectrum between, because you've just, again, given this wonderful example of how AI is going to transform medicine and all those other things through that alpha fold process. But, of course, there are people who worry, you know, again, that we're going to reach a moment where computers are smarter than us and then they're going to kill us all. Where on that spectrum of it's going to transform our world for the better to it's going to kill us all. Where do you stand?
0: Do you remember the Michael Crichton Grey Goo novel? I do, yeah. Uh, that was at the very beginning of my career. I was involved in making nanomaterials at that time. And remember, this book came out, and everybody's kept asking, me, are you making Grey Goo? Or are you going to take us out or something like that? <laughs> Actually, it turns out, you know, the materials that we're making, they're used in televisions, they're used in pathology labs today. But somehow, I don't think Grey Goo ate us. I, I don't mean to dismiss these things. I think people like Hinton are, are very uh, deep thinkers, and I think the ethics, policy, and law things are very important. I guess philosophically, I'm on the side of, one, at least in most areas, to be closely, closely, closely monitoring and looking for where things seem to be going off the rails and then acting quickly, rather than trying to absolutely guess all the places that things were going, put in a bunch of regulations, slow everything down because the creation of knowledge or the improvement of learning is going to be very substantial, very substantial. And I think, you know, we have to bring our best judgments as societies. We have to be in, again, coming back to free expression, we need to to talk about this stuff and really think about it in order to assure that when we put in a regulation, it's because there's a good reason and that we're going to allow the innovation to still occur because it's possible to shut things down so early that things don't take place. I'm not on the sort of six-month hiatus grouping. I'm in the more, let's have the deep dialogue, and maybe imagining a situation in which we would have a new way of thinking about how these innovations take place, where people from ethics, from policy, from law, from the humanities, which I want to just deeply celebrate how important they are for this time in our society. Uh, We're going to invest more in our humanities at Chicago. I think we really need to be integrating those things early, but being ready to regulate as things seem to be going a little bit funny. We've talked again about some of the issues that higher
1: education has faced in the last few years. And I read a book last year on the topic of trust and declining trust in public institutions. And science hasn't been immune to that, partly because of some of the stuff that went on around COVID, I think, and concerns about some of the mixed messages on public health, concerns, again, about some of the things that have been going on in universities, whether it's DEI or some of these other things. One worries about, you know, is pure science really being prioritized over political considerations and other things? How worried are you about the state of trust in... American scientific research and the American scientific field?
0: I think it's a really important thing to be very worried about. The topic we were talking about at the beginning of free expression, the data show very clearly that over time, people who identify as conservative have been skeptical about universities uh, more and more and more. And the same trend is being seen now with science. I'm deeply concerned about it. Now, in the case of science, you know, I mean, I outlined to you why I think as a university, if we follow our principles, then people should ultimately trust us. We should be trustworthy. But the same thing is true in science, that we have to be willing when things seem to have not quite gone right. We have to be willing to take those apart to question ourselves and to see. And if we've developed, you know, maybe there's different admirable goals that one might have, but if the policies leading there really were not well thought through and they created bad outcomes, then we have to be willing to talk about that and to look at them. So I do think that this growing distrust of science is something that all of us who care about the gifts that come from science should be concerning ourselves with greatly, and we should be willing to take it apart and criticize it and see where we might have gone off into the wrong place. And I do think in some of these examples that did happen, you know, I'm not an expert in all of those things, so I don't want to kind of launch in uh, criticisms myself, but I would say that I think it would be fair for people to be open to the idea of, let's sit down and take this apart and look at it. And in our university, at least, when we think we may have made a mistake about something, then we'll go back and we'll ask with our faculty to have have the discussion, administration and the faculty together. That's what happened in the Calvin Report, which we celebrate today. It was a dialogue between the faculty, you know, who are part of a community. Of- yeah, and that transparency is so and, cool. and we went back and we talked about it. And then, you know, we found, okay, maybe there's some ways we can improve our policies so that we don't have those outcomes. And so, you know, I think that's the way for us to all come back together. And, you know, maybe that's going to be hard to do, but the benefits of doing it are so large. Let's find a way.
1: Paul Alavisatis, President of the University of Chicago. Thank you very much indeed for joining Free Expression.
0: Thank you. It's always a
1: pleasure. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Free Expression. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Please join us again next week for another conversation with someone talking about some of these big issues that are shaping our world. Thank you very much and goodbye.
0: This episode is brought to you by Vanta. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001 and more. Learn how by watching Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com/wsj